are now listening to the Civic Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Lori McNeil. For more, go to civic-hackers.org. Thank you for tuning in to the Civic Hacker Podcast. This is Lori McNeil, founder and director of the Civic Hacker Network and the Civic Hacker Summit. And... 100% that lady on your committee who will be making a spreadsheet about whatever it is that we're working on. So you want to start a nonprofit? Or maybe you already have. And now you're finding out that your brilliant plans to save the world while not simultaneously starving or working yourself into the grave just to make ends meet, those plans are looking real naive right now. Or Maybe you feel like if you could just crack the code on volunteer management, you could 10x your impact overnight. And, um, oh yeah, how's your board? Sorry, you don't have to answer that. In this episode, you're going to learn about how Jack Beck, founder and CEO of Turnout, journeyed through these kinds of issues and established an organization that is now in the position to effectively and sustainably mobilize communities to power queer and trans movements. Listen in. Jack Beck, welcome. I'm so pleased uh, that you agreed to talk with us today. I'm, you know, loving that what we're about to be able to share with the network. I think um, your experience is really going to help everybody out. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great to be with you. All right. So we'll start you know, right off the bat um, with just a little bit about your background and um, your organization turnout. Um, you know, how did you come to create that? Um, and, you know, what are you, what have you got going on now in your organization that you're excited to share? Yeah, so for folks who don't know us, you know, we're Turnout, we're a nonprofit that started in the Bay Area, in California, and we just last year expanded statewide. Our mission is mobilizing communities to power queer and trans movements. Um, So what that looks like is we spend all year going out into communities, connecting with people who care about queer and trans causes, bringing them into our network and helping them find opportunities for meaningful service at over 200 different queer and trans organizations across the state doing a huge variety of work, whether it's supporting unhoused queer and trans youth, supporting queer and trans elders who don't have biological family to help take care of them, mental health services, sexual health services, legal support, all sorts of stuff, you know, all of that stuff for our communities is really led by grassroots organizations where mainstream institutions and even our own biological families have kind of fallen short. It's really organizations created by queer and trans people for queer and trans people who have stepped up to fill that gap. And so we work all year to really build a base of support to support those organizations. Um, I started it in 2015 because I had worked at queer and trans nonprofits for my whole career and we always needed help and we could never find it when we needed it. But I would be out in social environments and people would say, oh, you work for a queer and trans nonprofit? Like, I want to get involved. I want to serve my community. Like, can I volunteer? And I'd be like, well, I don't need you now. I would have loved to know that you existed a month ago when I need somebody. 
And I started to think about what it would look like to have a community of people who had stepped up and said, like, I want to help. And then when a nonprofit needs them, we can push that need out to that network and then send over the folks who are available. Um, so we launched those programs um, in the Bay Area and we now provide a huge range of services. I think we have like almost 6,000 volunteers in our network now supporting over 200 organizations. And it's not just volunteer recruitment anymore. We've expanded to board member recruitment. We've expanded to uh, really providing services that support queer and trans nonprofits at every level. So volunteer, staff, board, making sure people have uh, a strong recruitment system to get new people in the door and really strong trainings and support systems to make sure people have a positive experience once they're there so they stay, you know, and can really continue to fuel the work that our communities need. Right. And so in, um, you know, starting your organization, you know, seven years, right, that's nothing to shake a stick at, right, to have been able to um, grow to the point where you feel like you have the capacity to be statewide. So, you know, what was kind of the the journey there, like in figuring that out, um, you know, with resources, with, um, I think, you touched on something like with the timeliness of having a volunteer, like having a standing army of volunteers for a nonprofit, especially a small one, like maintaining that is, is a job in and of itself. Totally. So, yeah. So that, you know, there's definitely, you know, clearly, um, you know, a lot of uh, learnings that you have dialed in along the way. So maybe you can kind of share like the capacity resource side, you know, what that growth journey was like. Yeah, totally. Um, so I left my full-time job in January of 2015 to to build turnout. And I thought that, you know, we wrote a strategic plan and we had all these ideas about like where we could get money, like almost none of those things panned out. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then, like I thought I was like, great, we're gonna, I'm gonna be making money from this in like six months, and then I can, you know, be supported by this organization to spend all my time on it. Mm-hmm. That did not happen on that timeline. Like looking back, I was like, why did I even think that? That was insane. So, you know, I had some savings, I blew through that really quickly. And I ended up um, trying to find different ways to make money that were flexible enough to allow me to take meetings and do the stuff that I need to do to build turnout, um, which ended up being gig economy stuff. So I drove for Uber. I worked for a moving company. Like I did all sorts of stuff for about three years until finally we figured out a revenue model that would work. Mm. Um, And that also was kind of by accident. You know, we had been recruiting volunteers um, and sending them out to nonprofits. So I I would just cold call nonprofits and be like, Hey, can I send some volunteers to you? I don't know if we'll have anybody, but uh, can I post your volunteer opportunities to our network? And then if we do have someone, we'll send them over. And they're like, yeah, sure. Like, what are, you know, yeah. like giving them free no, volunteers. Don't help me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So even if no one shows up, at least we manage expectations around that. And usually I would show up to help build a relationship. And even that went a long way. Um, and so the thing that really made a difference for us was I was out tabling at, um, the Castro street fair and we had recruited volunteers for Oakland pride in the past, you know, sent people over. So I knew who they were and their board treasurer came up to me and was like, Hey, 
do you manage volunteers beyond recruitment? You know, our volunteer manager just went back to school. We kind of were left high and dry. Can you manage our volunteers for our event? We will pay you. <laughs> and I was like, yes, we do do that. In fact, <laughs> we would be happy to do that. Absolutely. And so we started exploring this new area of volunteer management as a contractor And that ended up being a really, that was like a revenue stream that really worked. And it turns out a lot of large events do have a budget put aside for volunteer management. And now we are the volunteer manager for San Francisco Pride, Oakland Pride, Los Angeles Pride, Folsom Street Fair, um, like a ton of Castro Street Fair, actually, interestingly, you know, which is where we made that first connection. Um, And it's, It's a job that volunteers, volunteer management is often like the last thing people think about. And it's the first thing we think about. And we put a lot of thought into it. And we work so many different events that we have a pretty good sense of what's needed and what's not and what questions have to be asked and what are good strategies around recruitment and management. So we can add a lot of value there. And that was really what made the difference in us being able to pay my salary, to hire other people. Now we have five full-time staff members. We have a health insurance, which is super cool. We even have a 401k. Yeah, Yeah, so it's that really made a difference for us. The flip side of that is that running those contracts is extremely time-consuming and it is, uh, it's a big drain on our, um, our human resources. And so we really stacked a bunch of contracts this summer and our staff got kind of exhausted. And so now we're being really deliberate about diversifying our revenue streams, making sure we're getting money from things that are very efficient, um, from a staff perspective so that we are able to do, the kind of programming that, you know, we, we love to do those events and they are mission aligned for us, but there's a lot of stuff that is not, um, there's other stuff that, that we want to do that is important to our communities that we want to make sure our staff has the time to do and that our staff is not getting burned out and having to work, you know, crazy hours because bur- nonprofit burnout is very real. Yeah. Yeah. When you were saying that you spent your whole career in, um, nonprofits, I'm thinking, well, glutton for punishment. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's hard. You know, a lot of our staff have, like all of our staff, that's the world that we come from. And I think part of what we share in common as a perspective is a critical lens on how can we do better as a sector? You know, how can we support our staff people better as a nonprofit sector as a whole? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a lot of the training work that we do is in, you know, how can we have a healthier uh, queer and trans nonprofit infrastructure to make sure the people who have stepped up to be a part of this and dedicated a huge part of their lives to our communities um, are being given a good deal, you know, that we are being supported and we're not being like sacrificed for our communities and we're not just cannon fodder for, um, you know, we're a part of our communities. Like if we're helping queer and trans people outside of the organization, why aren't we helping queer and trans people inside our organizations, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's a very good point. Like if you were to hear of, you know, the, how your staff was being treated like somewhere else, like, would you, want to step in and rescue them from yourself like you know like how totally how, it's yeah a very good way to kind of step back and look at you know how are people treated um and so while you were um are are providing the service uh, for the revenue like you were still also managing um matching volunteers like 
as just like for free, right? Like you weren't, yeah. you weren't man, you don't manage the volunteer engagement uh, for everyone. That's your service, but you still are kind of managing, <laughs> managing the intake, I guess. Yeah, we kind of, I mean, I kind of think of it as almost like a freemium model where, mm-hmm. you know, we provide this basic service for free to everyone, which is we are always out recruiting, building this network. And if you have a volunteer need, we will post it to our network, we'll send people over, and then you are responsible for kind of receiving and managing them, um, which is good because it helps us build relationships and make connections that then if some of our partners do want trainings or do want uh, contracted management services, they know us, they trust us, and they are willing to have a conversation with us about that. When we come out the gate cold without a, a prior relationship, that is a much harder sell to make, you know, so it really helps us with our paid services down the line, but it's kind of an investment of, um, you know, free services at the beginning, which is, you know, that's our mission, you know, we're a nonprofit. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's what you're doing anyway. (laughs) Exactly. So, okay. And then um, I'm just curious if you have, you know, now that you're looking back on your meager beginning, (laughs) (laughs) you know, do, why do you think, your um, six month, you know, plan and like the funding plan that you had, it was probably very well informed, you know, very um, typical. You probably had identified funders, right? And <laughs> done some oh. research on funders. So why do you think that um, that didn't end up panning out the way you expected? I love this question because I think this is something that any founder is probably going to run into is that you can always make your best guess and, you know, do your desk research, do your desk review, do your interviews. Um, But, you know, we put together a pretty solid strategic plan. In my opinion, I, we had a, like an advisory board of 20 different people who are parts of, you know, every, they represented every part of our community that we would be working with to understand like, how can we shape this in a way that the community, it's something the community really wants. Um, and still that is a challenge, you know, people, a lot of people don't even do that. You know, a lot of us, you know, working in nonprofit for, you know, I think I had worked in nonprofit for like eight years at that point. And I had seen a lot of folks who think they have a good idea, but they never talk to anyone Mm -hmm. about whether it's needed. And then they invest a bunch of time and energy and sometimes money into it. And people are like, we don't like, we don't want this, you know? (laughs) It's like actively destructive, you know, it's, it's actually making things worse because they didn't take the time to talk to the community about like, you know, I I think this is a good idea, but like, is it a good idea? You know, do people actually want this? So I really didn't want to waste a bunch of my time on something that I thought was a good idea, but nobody else did. Mm -hmm. So that I think helped a lot to give us a really good footing to begin with. But even then I had ideas about how things would work. And, you know, once something is out in the world, you never kind of know how it's going to operate. So like, I thought there are LGBT employee groups at a lot of companies and a lot of companies have a lot of money. And those companies also have corporate social responsibility programs and those things are funded. And so if I can set up meetings with these LGBT employee groups, that will be a source of revenue for us. And we quickly discovered that like they they do not have money in their budgets. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them have very restricted budgets that are mostly for pride events for like a float, which is marketing stuff. Yeah. And they don't have a lot of money to spend on something like what we offer. And so that was like, you know, that's something I just didn't have visibility into. Mm-hmm. And we learned it on the fly. 
And, um, you know, that knocked out a huge strategy that we thought was going to be really good for us. Um, yeah, especially being in the Bay area, you know, like there, there would, I would imagine that there was like, yeah, there's a million rich, you know, (laughs) rich contacts I can make. Um, yeah. So I think giving, giving yourself runway to learn in the field is super valuable. You know, if you can have some kind of other job, you know, for me, it was Uber and this moving company, like where it gave me time where I wasn't risking losing my housing. I wasn't risking losing, you know, I could pay for groceries. It was really tight and, you know, but I was able to take time to figure out a revenue model that worked in the real world. And it took literally like three years to do that. Mm. So, you know, some, some folks will, it won't take that long, but um, for us, it did. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I hear that because um, I was telling someone else, like, you know, you read, you hear sage advice and you you read the articles about how long, you know, it has taken to grow something and, Yet still, like, I don't think it applies to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a little bit of, like, yeah. like taking the time to really, like, internalize, like, no, they're talking, you too. Like, that's, that's going to be something that happens to you as well. So, um, yeah, but I mean, optimism never hurts. Well, totally. Yeah. And I think, like, there are some folks who have an idea that the world is just, like, ready for, you know, and they happen to hit hit on something that is really viable immediately and it like takes off and you know for i feel like the way i think about that is like you know that's great you know that's wonderful but you don't get to pick whether you're one of those people or not you know like that's something where that's like the world chooses you you don't get to choose that but if you know for what we were doing I don't think the like someone hadn't really done anything like that before. And we had to kind of build it from scratch and we had to really do a lot of um, like priming of people to be like, Hey, this is something that we're looking at. It's new. Uh, and we needed to find ways to make it work. And that takes a lot longer to really make the world ready for what you're doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, especially with the changing, you know, landscape, I guess, for you guys, thankfully, right? Or, you know, how did COVID um, really, you know, shake things up for for you? And you know, yeah. COVID was um, for everybody. Oh, yeah, COVID. <laughs> I'm sure people can, you know, this is uh, a common experience where COVID was horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, I think especially for people who are trying to build something, which is so hard anyway. And I think one of the most heartbreaking things for me about COVID was seeing like the small businesses in my neighborhood close and like knowing how much care and love and time and work goes into building something like that. And then something that is totally out of your control sweeps through like a tidal wave and all of your work is gone. (laughs) It's like, oh my God. Really sad. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, I think other businesses were able to pivot. We we pivoted from our event model. You know, a lot of our money, like I said, was from these big events. Those evaporated overnight. And it was okay. like, oh. Yeah, I didn't want to ask. <laughs> I was like, you know, this is 
probably, you know, it's a harmful question. <laughs> probably should have gave you a little um, more emotional. Trigger warning. To the- <laughs> yeah, like. no i mean it's uh it's something that i think all of us went through that was really difficult for everyone in different ways and i think especially for like nonprofit leaders and you know business owners it was really like the stress of trying to keep your project afloat was really challenging for us we got you know ppp loans which made a huge difference um we pivoted to a lot of individual donor fundraising and people were very generous during that time. So that was really helpful. The communities really stepped up to support local nonprofits. That made a huge difference for us. We got emergency grant funding from a couple of other sources. um, And we really leaned into leveraging our volunteer network to support the most vulnerable people in queer and trans communities. So we set up grocery delivery programs. Um, we set up uh, a, a COVID-19 registry so people could post things that they needed. Like, you know, I remember one person needed a new, um, like, feeding tube bag. Mm-hmm. And they had been reusing the same bag for, like, months, I think, because they were oh, really, no. and it's like, not, you're not supposed this. to do that, you yeah. know. And, like, another person needed a generator because they didn't have, like, any power in their, um, like, RV that they were living in. And, you know, there was someone in an SRO who needed a fridge because they couldn't, like, preserve food. And, you know, some of these things were, like, these were economic inequities and injustices that were existing before COVID, you know. And I feel like COVID really put everyone into crisis in a way that, to me felt like people who usually feel a little bit more stable might've had a little more empathy for people who are in less stable situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was one of the silver linings of COVID that we were able to mobilize people who like, you know, people who are part of more resource networks to connect with people who are part of less resource networks to really work together and making sure people had the things that they needed. Mm-hmm. So that that's what we spent our time doing. And we were actually able to come out of COVID okay. Wow. wow. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah, I forgot about the, the triple P mm-hmm. loans that nonprofits were actually eligible for thank goodness because you know a lot of assistance to businesses small business assistance programs don't really include um you know a sector so yeah totally it's nice that it did yeah. thank god yeah i mean as as um problematic and dysfunctional as congress is i'm kind of amazed <laughs> that they were able to like put that together together, yeah (laughs) (laughs) but thank god it made such a huge difference for us you know yeah all right well um i definitely you know wanted to ask you about some of your secret sauce when it comes to uh, volunteers (laughs) um you know it like i was you know mentioning like it's challenging um you can get people that say they want to help but you know keeping them engaged having them be you know actually um, ready to go <laughs> and yeah. be effective and it's very difficult and especially when for a smaller organization I think um, you know when you're ready like when you need help they're not ready or <laughs> out there and then so you you know scramble and survive you know getting through whatever it is and mm-hmm. then you know the volunteer comes and it's like okay thank you I don't want to say no to you but I don't have anything for you to do right now <laughs> Totally. So yeah, um, can you talk about kind of you know what what are the aspects of the 
you're a volunteer program that, you know, retains people through the, you know, kind of slow and busy times. And yeah, totally. I'm, I think about this a lot. I mean, this is like our business. So, you know, I definitely think about this all the time. I think especially for a small organization, having a successful volunteer program is really hard. You know, like the whole reason we exist is because so many queer and trans organizations are very small and they are already overwhelmed trying to do the work that they're they're tasked with doing Mm -hmm. and putting out fires every day. And they don't have the capacity to necessarily run a really good volunteer program. You know, when people reach out to them with cold emails, they don't have the time to respond back. Or, you know, if even if they do connect, you know, someone will show up for a volunteer opportunity and they don't have the things they need for, you know, uh, the volunteer to do the job that they're there to do. So, and it's not because they don't care, you know, because they uh, are like negligent. It's because they're overwhelmed. So I think for small organizations, my best advice would be, start building a list in the like as a part of what you're already doing Mm. Um, because that is going to be the most efficient way to get contact information is if you're already out at an event make sure you have like a you know a volunteer sign up form make sure every time you are out you are collecting people's information who want to get involved with your work um, so that you are not having to do extra recruitment stuff, which is great. Extra recruitment stuff is really helpful if you have the capacity for it. You know, taking at big events, being a a speaker at events that are, you know, have a bunch of people in their community that might be interested in your community. Um, You know, there's lots of ways you can get your organization in front of other people to continue building your list. Um, And then reach out as regularly as you can anytime you have a need or you have like a little update, even little updates about your work can be really helpful in building a consistent presence with people, communicating regularly. Um, so when people are available, they can come out to help. You know, one of the things we found is a lot of people on our list, you know, I'll run into them like out on the street and they're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I haven't been able to volunteer lately. I've been really busy. I'm like, that's fine. You know, our whole, the whole purpose is for you to have opportunities to step into when you are available. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you're not available, someone else is available. So don't worry about it. But it is really a lot of people want to help, but they're really busy. So making sure you're giving regular opportunities for people to get involved, I think, is is very helpful. Yeah. And you know, I'm thinking about a lot of um folks, you know, who are doing, you know, their volunteerism is, you know, digital or um you know, they're building, you know, they need um, people contributing to their GitHub or whatever, yeah. like, you know, the same thing, definitely. Like I can see that applying, like, you know, you're out there, <laughs> like, you know, you have a digital uh, calling card, right. If you have a website or, you know, yeah. whatever you're working on, um, are you asking like, Hey, you want to join my list? And, you know, I sometimes need help. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Just kind of keeping that line of communication available. Yeah. List building is so essential for not only volunteers, but, you know, a lot of those folks can end up being strategic partners or donors or, you know, all sorts of things. Um, You know, when I first started a nonprofit, I didn't understand the importance of communication. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I'm a program person. Like, we're doing the work. We're on the ground, blah, blah, blah. Ironically, I ended up becoming the director of communications. (laughs) I was like, I I don't know why I ended up in that job where I, like, didn't understand why it existed. (laughs) 
but I did what I was asked and, you know, whatever. But now that I run my own organization, the importance of strong communication is so obvious to me. Like that is how people learn about what you're doing. That is how people who are going to help you find out that you exist. Um, and, you know, not just the people you're providing services to, but the people who are going to help, you know, can help you meet your mission. You know, that's mm-hmm. how you, you connect with them is through really good communications. And list building is a super core part of that. Yeah. And, you know, it's so like you think about people, you know, they have a mission and all of these things. What And when you start out, especially it seems like, you know, this is external to my mission. Like this is extra stuff on me. Like, why are we, <laughs> why are you telling me I have to do this? Like my, like you're saying program, my mission is this, but you know, if you're not, you know, if you go under during COVID, like who's doing your mission then yes. you are not communicating. Nobody knows, you know, how to help you um, when, when they're ready to help, like, how that's harming your mission and that's something you never intended to have happen. So absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's something that I've been, you know, now that we have five staff members and we have like a really strong program team and a really strong development team, it frees my time up to start going out to like networking events and meeting people. And like that also always felt really like extra and kind of like cheesy to me, Mm -hmm. but it is so valuable. Like just going out to these events, I've met so many people that are like, oh yeah, I'm actually part of this organization and we have a grant that I think you'd be a really good fit for. Or like, I'm looking for board service. Can I get involved? Or I'm part of this network that raises money. Like, can you speak to us? You know, blah, blah, blah. And so now we're creating literally a schmoozing calendar for all of these events that are like good networking events that have the people that we want to talk to. And if I can't go, I'm going to ask one of our board members to go and, you know, make sure we are constantly out connecting with people um, to build the base of support that we need to, to thrive. Yeah. The, um, I like it, a schmoozing calendar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. It is important. And um, so I'm curious, like, so you use volunteers, I'm assuming, like, because you have only five staff. Yeah. But there's, you know, how many, how many, I guess, yeah, what does volunteering within your organization look like? It's a really good question. Um, Our core volunteers, we have a couple of core volunteers that work with us consistently. So our social media is all run by um, two volunteers named Raleigh and Gabby, who are amazing. They are both part of, I don't actually, they're not both part of the same college program, but they both live abroad. One of them is traveling around the world in multiple, it's like a semester at sea type thing. So they're always like <laughs> calling in from like, you know, like South Korea or, you know, wherever. Um, and they're amazing. They really carry our social media work. Um, so we um, work with volunteers on that. Our youth program is also run by volunteers who, you know, have expertise in working with youth and wanted to give back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parks um, uh, is our volunteer lead there, and they do an amazing job. So those are really our core volunteers that we work with but we also when we're out tabling at events to recruit volunteers we'll ask for volunteers to come out and work a shift with us Um, so that's kind of what our volunteer programs for internally for us look like and then um 
you know, looking at the board piece of it, um, you know, everybody that's got a career in nonprofits, like this is also a, a little heads up. Okay. We're going to talk about some board stuff. Yeah. <laughs> For those of us who are battle scarred. Um, but, you know, they just, I have been taught and, you know, I believe, right. You can't have a strong organization without a strong board. Mm-hmm. And so the decision to expand your um, volunteer uh, recruitment to um, board, which is right. An organization's most important volunteer, right. Essentially. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, yeah. How did, you know, how did that kind of expansion take place? And um, it seems like that's a real, like, I hate the term force multiplier, but that's what I can think of right now. Like, you know, how to gift that a, a yeah. quality board member to an organization probably like <laughs> is, you know, like giving them superpowers. Um, 100%. We say that all the time that if you are passionate about a cause that you really want to make a big impact for, join a board that is working on like your the ability for you to make an impact on that cause on a board is incredible, you know, as an engaged board member. So I totally agree with you. Um, the way we got into it was we were talking with a bunch of nonprofits, you know, recruiting them to be part of our network so we could send volunteers to them. And all the time, you know, I'd be asking them, what are your volunteer needs, blah, blah, blah. They'd say, okay, we need volunteers for X, Y, and Z. But like, do you know anyone who's looking for board service? Because like, we are really having a hard time recruiting for our board. Like, is anyone in your network interested in that? And I was like, well, we can post a volunteer opportunity for it and see how it goes. And then on the flip side, I'd be out recruiting volunteers for the other half of our network. And a lot of the ERG leaders that I was talking to, um, the employee LGBT employee group leaders, you know, I'd be talking with them about like, hey, do you want to do group volunteer opportunities? You know, blah, blah, blah. They're like, yeah, definitely. But like, just for me, I'm looking to join a board. Like, do you know anyone who's looking for board members? And I was like, dang, this was happening on both sides all the time. And I don't think a lot of people had our unique positionality to see that there was this huge need on both sides and that no one was making this connection. And I really feel like if you are seeing, like if the market is telling you that there is a need for something, that is a really powerful indicator that it's a good use of your time to invest Mm -hmm. in creating a service, you know, that responds to that. So in 2019, we launched a pilot for something called Queer Board Match, where we brought together a bunch of nonprofits that were looking to recruit new board members. Um, In kind of a tabling event, we had an opening panel where we talked about what is board service? You know, what kind of questions do you want to ask if you're joining a board? And we invited our whole network and it was a huge success. Mm. And so we started hosting those regularly and having an event like that gave us an opportunity to get some corporate funding because one of the things we learned out in the world that we didn't know when we started is that for corporations to give money to things, it really helps to have an event that they can sponsor. So if we have, we we didn't have anything like that before. So having a- You're helping with other people's events. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So now that we had our own event, we could be like, hey, Yelp, hey, Genentech, hey, Splunk, like- we're doing, we already work with you. We're doing this event. Are you interested in sponsoring? And, you know, all of those corporations ended up sponsoring these events. So that helped bring in money for, you know, our general programs as well. So that's how we started. And then we learned over time that, 
making the initial match was only half of the equation and that people were joining boards, not just through us, just in general as a board service thing. And like no one was giving them any guidance or training on how to be a board member. <laughs> Which then is the opposite of the it's a forced divide, divider. <laughs> no. I, I guess you. <laughs> if, yeah. If they, if they don't have it together, if they are not supporting, yeah. um, it doesn't work. <laughs> And that's how you lose good board members. Yeah. You know, if people are showing yeah. up and they're like, hey, do this thing. And you're like, I don't know how to do that thing. Like, you didn't even tell me I was supposed to like raise money or, you know, learn, like know how to read financials or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so we launched a new training program this year called the Queer Board Catalyst, um, which is a six week cohort-based program where people learn how to be board members. And then at the end of that six-week program, we do a mini queer board match where we invite 10 nonprofits from our network who are looking for new board members and introduce them to our recent graduates to as potential, you know, hosts for, um, you know, or potential placements for their first board service, which is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things we're looking at doing with that program is launching specifically BIPOC cohorts and trans cohorts. Because one of the things that we see all the time in the queer nonprofit infrastructure is boards are still predominantly white and cisgender. Mm. That's a problem. You know, that ends up creating, you know, when white cisgender people are at the highest level of leadership and they are deciding, you know, what the direction of the organization is, and they might not necessarily have a strong window into the needs of BIPOC or trans people in the community that ends up shaping what the work looks like. And it isn't great, you know, for making sure that everyone in our community has what they need, you know? Right. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like I would be really uncomfortable as that, a member of a board saying I'm serving these people and mm-hmm. looking around the boardroom, like it just, it kind of boggles the mind. Like, like, did you guys realize that you didn't have anybody, <laughs> but yeah. So you're helping <laughs> that take that way an excuse anyway. Like here's some, you know, here are ready people um, who are representing the community you're serving. Why don't you? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the other half of that is that if you are stepping onto a board as a BIPOC person or a trans person that doesn't, where it is primarily white or cisgender, often that is like not a nice environment to be in. Why would you sign up for that? Right. And, you know, people are like, we've heard a lot of stories about people joining a board and they're like just getting misgendered constantly, or there's like weird racial microaggressions constantly. And they're like, I'm out. Like, I don't want to be here. This sucks. This is like <laughs> violent, you know? I wanted to help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> and so we have, because of that, and we see that in vo- our volunteer work too, where we send volunteers out and they're getting misgendered by the leaders of the nonprofits that we have sent them to. Oh, no. And that's in queer spaces. And you know, if that's happening in our own community spaces, that's really a problem outside of our community. So we have a, a new series of trainings where, we are working on like ident- like how do you how can you um, create a welcoming environment and make sure that you are uh, not alienating the parts of our community that you need to be centering, you know? Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's, I can imagine the training opportunities about like, that they're plentiful. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, in this case, I mean, really, it should apply for everyone. Like. 
when we talk about someone having a good experience, you know, volunteering, like how, how, how far are we willing to go with caring about the quality of that experience and being aware of the identity things that could impact that experience that they're going to have? Absolutely. I think it's a real missed opportunity for a lot of organizations where volunteers are often the last thing people think about. And I think it's just a, I think it's a huge missed opportunity. You know, if volunteers are an afterthought, often the experience is not that good. But if you really put thought into making sure that people are having a good time, that, you know, these people who have chosen to dedicate some of their personal time to making this thing happen, if you can find capacity to honor that and make sure that they have a positive experience, that is the lowest barrier to entry for new supporters of your work. You know, those people, if you can really build a relationship with them, they often become long-term volunteers, long-term donors, long-term advocates going out, recruiting other people to be a part of your work. And if you can really take care of those relationships, it's really worthwhile. Um, But so many of our organizations are so overtaxed it's very difficult to do that well, you know, so we try to help bridge that gap a little bit. Wonderful. Well, um, before we sign off, I definitely want to make sure you have a chance to plug anything you want to plug or, you know, calls to action. And yeah. <laughs> Announcements, oh breaking news. I feel like I'm on a late night show. This is so fun. I get to like <laughs> plug our projects. Um, I mean, there's a couple book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I don't have a bookshelf with all of my like, books that I haven't written on me. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple of things that I guess I'll say for people who are interested that may want to get involved with our work. You know, if you need volunteers, go to our website at turnout.org, T-U-R-N-O-U-T.org. Um, you know, we would be happy to put you on our website, push out any volunteer opportunities you have. Um, you know, if you want to do some board development or you need board members, definitely check out the board section of our website. Um, we have trainings for folks who want to get involved with boards. If you are a nonprofit and you want support to build capacity of your existing board, we have a queer board accelerator program where every member of your board can join. You have a monthly learning session on everything you need to know to be a high-powered board member. Um, You build relationships with board members at other organizations that are working on similar things to show resources, have mutual support so you're not alone. Um, And you have an Ask Me Anything email address. So if you have a question, you know, you can send it to an expert and then we will get back to you with an answer. So we have a lot of programs to support those things. And we have a lot of trainings around gender competence, um, you know, also how to build a volunteer program, how to support your volunteers. So we have trainings around all that stuff too. So thanks for that opportunity to plug those things. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, everybody get yourself trained. (laughs) Be a force multiplier, not a diminisher. (laughs) Yeah, totally. We would love to hear from you. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again to Jack Beck. And with gratitude, I acknowledge the people who over the ages have cared for the beautiful lands in far Northern California, where I produce this podcast. I'm talking about the Wintu people. This is their ancestral and present home, and I'm committed to supporting work that they lead to meet the needs of their people. Hey, hackers, let's do this again next week. I like you. If the feeling's mutual, go on over to civic-hackers.org 
to find out how to keep in touch. And with that, I'm Lori McNeil, wishing you all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker podcast. In case you need a reminder, problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of Civic Hacker Network, a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. The audio is edited by Lily Conway, and Kate Allison writes our scripts. The Civic Hacker Network is a nonprofit organization fiscally hosted by the Open Collective Foundation. Join the network for free at civic-hackers.org.